we've been doing a little series uh, on bikes, not really, but uh, we have been doing a little series, and this is the last week of a series on faith, hope, and love, and it's really a, sto- a series of talks about the church, and uh, you know, the church kind of comes under fire, and man, I don't know about the future of the church, and it's just hanging on, and, and uh, you know, after COVID, you know, a lot of people didn't come back to church, all those kinds of things, but I wanted to take a few weeks just to help us understand what is the DNA of church, because as we discussed in week one, the church is God's instrument to take us somewhere. I'm going to repeat that. The church is God's instrument to take us somewhere. And if you remember, in week one, we kind of had this little analogy about uh, church is not a cruise ship, it's an ocean liner. And uh, that idea that we don't just get on a cruise ship and, you know, get into the church and it's about entertainment and we just kind of, you know, it's here for me kind of thing. But we recognize that the church is God's instrument, that like an ocean liner, it's taking us from point A to point B. It's taking us somewhere. And what we established is that the, that the church is the instrument that God uses to take us, to move us, to become more and more like Jesus. Sometimes we in the church overcomplicate things, don't we? But the church, the Bible teaches us, the church is about helping us, not just individually, but as a community of faith to become more and more like Jesus. And so we recognize that we're trying to go somewhere as the church. Now, what we established also in week one is that Paul, in writing to the New Testament church, he had this little tripart axiom uh, that you're familiar with, faith, hope, and love, as a diagnostic tool to look at the health of the church. And so if the church is going somewhere, uh, there's, a, there's a few things that go into building the church, helping the church become what the church is supposed to be and where the church is supposed to go. And what Paul identified was that it's faith, hope, and love. And so what we have done over the last few weeks is we've taken a, um, and we did them out of, out, of, out of order. We did faith, and then we did love last week, and this week we're going to do hope. But I want to leave or implant this little analogy using the bike Um, Because the bike is a vehicle that helps you go somewhere, isn't it? Um, Now, some of you haven't, how many of you, it's been a while since you rode a bike. You know what they say, you know, once you learn to ride a bike, you never forget. I don't know if that's true, but, but bikes are a mode of transportation. They take us somewhere, don't they? And, and the reality is that, that the church is a vehicle that's going somewhere, it's taking us somewhere, it's moving us somewhere. But what I want you to see and to understand is that there are this little tri, tripart axiom, these little three little words that, that have such rich meaning for the author, or for Paul in the New Testament to help us build a church. So it's not just that we're going somewhere. There has to be a frame, there has to be some direction, and there has to be an engine that moves us. And and if I could say it this way, as I close out the series, faith is the frame. Remember in week one, we talked about the fact that our faith is not rooted in some sort of believism or some sort of wishful thinking. Our faith is not rooted in kind of ourselves, our own effort, our own challenge. Our faith is rooted in the gospel. We never outrun our need for the gospel. That, that we are called to yield to, to surrender, to submit, to constantly be dependent upon Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross and forgives me of my sins and then leaves the rest up to me. No, no, no. I constantly, we constantly need the gospel because the gospel is about a life of surrender, a life of repentance, a life of dependence upon Jesus. And so we recognize that this is the framework around which the church is built, that faith is the frame. But as we talked about last week, love 
is the aim. That, that we're trying to move somewhere. But it's not just about me living my best life now. It's not just about me trying my best to get through this life so that I can hold on and get to the other side, right? No, no, no. There's an aim around all of this. And so if faith is the frame, love is the aim. And last week we talked about this idea that love, first love, because God is love. Love isn't God. God is love. And because God is love and he first loved us, we in turn love him. We respond to that which we, he's initiated. And so we are people, the church as his family, his citizens, members of his kingdom. And we love him in return because he has first loved us. But as we also discussed last week, it's not just that we love him. It's not just that he is the priority in our life. Our love and our affection, even as we sang about this morning, is all about him first and foremost. What we also recognize is that that fundamentally changes the way we live in relationship to others, doesn't it? And so faith, the gospel, is the frame. Love is the aim, right? First Corinthians chapter eight, knowledge puffs up, but love is the goal. We want to be those who love like Jesus loved, which means we love without compromise, right? We don't weaken our convictions on some of those things. If you're a parent, you know that sometimes you have to love your kids in a tough way, right? Because you don't want them to hurt themselves. But we want to be those who have a framework of faith, but love being our aim. And this week, I want to talk about the chain, the chain set, on the bike. How many of you know, how many of you have actually ever been riding a bike and the chain came off? Yeah, hopefully you didn't hurt yourself because that could be painful, right? I've been riding a bike and my chain has come off. I've actually been 51 miles an hour on this bike down a hill and, uh, and I've also been riding up a hill, which is even worse when the chain comes off the bike because all of a sudden there's no power to move me where I need to go. So I can have the frame, I can be pointed in the right direction, but if I don't have the chain, I don't have the engine that moves me to where I need to go. And all I want you to see and understand is that faith is the frame, love is the aim, but hope is the chain. Hope is the engine that moves us forward. Now here's the problem. It's actually hard to hope in a world, this is the world in which we live. You know, I was, uh, I was watching, anybody else watch the Ducks game yesterday? Yeah, yeah, I watched the Ducks game and I gave up hope and turned off the TV and went and mowed the lawn. And then I thought, I'll just check my phone and there was like a second left and they're winning. I'm like, what? What happened, right? Some of you are Seahawks fans. It's hard to hope after last week, right? But we live in a world where it's tricky and difficult to hope. Because we've all had our hopes dashed. We've all kind of been in that place where we wished, we hoped, we thought, and then something didn't happen the way we thought it was going to happen. In fact, uh, what we scientists are telling us now is that hope can actually be measured. And there's been some 2,000 studies done on hope. And one of the things that they've discovered is that hope is one of the key indicators of well-being. In fact, uh, there's some studies that have been done around kids, and they call these uh, hope scores. So if a kid has an increased hope score, there's improved attendance, GPA, graduation, going to college rates, all of those kinds of things improve because they have an increased hope. In fact, I, and this is what I love about the world in which we live, the world in which we live, scientists, the smartest people on the planet, have finally caught up to what the Bible taught us thousands of years ago. 
Because it says in Proverbs 13, 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so scientists, probably because there's been billions of dollars available through grants and, and, and so forth, have created studies to prove what the Bible said all along. That without hope, you grow sick. And yet it's difficult in the world in which we live to, to live with hope because there's increasing hopelessness. There's increasing loneliness, increasing conflict, increasing anxiety going on in the world in which we live. Just a few statistics, not to bore you with statistics, but these are just telling about the world in which you and I live. It says 51%, this was a Harvard study that was done recently, 51% of young people, that is between the ages of 18 and 29, that season of life when man, the world is your oyster, you should be going out and changing the world, but 51% of young Americans, 18 to 29, say they feel down, depressed, and hopeless. 58% of Americans report that they feel lonely. 56% of students are somewhat or very anxious. It's estimated that 264 million people around the world deal with anxiety. Anxiety is the most common mental health issue affecting some 40 million Americans last year alone. And this will surprise you, Oregon is the number one state in the country for anxiety and depression. This is an old stat from 2019. So this is pre-COVID. The World Health Organization estimated that anxiety had increased by some 25%. Man, we live in a hopeless, anxious, depressed, stressed out world. Yeah, I went to church today. The pastor rode in in a bike and then depressed me. It was awesome. <laughs> so we probably shouldn't finish there. But, but we re- I just want us to recognize this is the state of the world in which we live. And the question is, how did we get here? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the way we've gotten here, and I want to do a little kind of sociological study, if it's okay with you, just for a few minutes. But the way we've gotten here is because the secular gospel has replaced presence with progress. Let me say that again. The secular gospel, that, that kind of way of living here in this world has replaced the presence of God with this idea of progress. We'll just keep getting better. Because there's some sort of utopia out there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's something about loving and being kind and everything's going to be rosy and wonderful. And there's some sort of utopia out there because inside each one of us, God has planted, the Bible says that God has planted eternity within our hearts. So every human being is looking for some sort of utopia, some sort of something out there where things will be as they're meant to be. And the human or the secular gospel says, keep progressing, keep trying harder, keep making improvements. And if we just keep making improvement after improvement after improvement, we'll eventually get to that utopia. But the problem is, and this is the challenge, because every single one of us in this room, as hard as we try, and looking at the world in which we live, oftentimes we recognize the fact that no matter how hard we try to progress, no matter how hard we try to get better, things are not always getting better. You might make some gains over here, but we lose something over here. And this promise of progress that the secular gospel teaches us uh, goes way back to, well, it probably goes back to the garden and when we fell. But, but if you identify and look back to the Industrial Revolution, what you recognize is that there was this promise of progress. In fact, in sociological terms, it's, it's known as modernism. 
that this era of human development, you know, there was industry that was developing and all of these new technologies, new industries, new ways, new machines, new engines, new abilities to do things were being developed during this season, which sounds and is absolutely fantastic. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should go back to horse-drawn carriages, okay? I recognize that there's great benefit, but the problem of progress is that if we put our hope in progress, we'll be bitterly disappointed. And, and this is the story that we're told, is that what happened during that era of industrial revolution to be followed by technological revolutions and digital revolutions is that, that things are just going to keep progressing and getting better and better and better. And, and what we've discovered is, and all of us probably have a smartphone, and we love the fact that we have a smartphone, but how many of you have a love-hate relationship with your smartphone? Right? Like, it's not all good, right? And so not the progress might be good, but it produces something. And this is the challenge of the modern era, right? That modernism, this promise of progress, was, making, was supposed to make life better and better and better. However, slavery and oppression and greed and plagues and illnesses kept rising. And then World War I came. Then World War II then the UN formed, and I'm not knocking the UN, but the UN formed to try to make life better for humans. Can't we all just get along? If we form the UN, we'll have a great place where we can talk all these things through. But the problem was that the Cold War then started. And what happened in the psychology of humanity or this secular story that was unfolding is that there began to be a despondency that maybe it's not all about progress, which gave rise to what sociologically they call the postmodern movement. It's a reaction to the failure of modernism. I thought progress was going to make everything perfect, and yet it's failed. And so what about all these wars? And so what began to happen is that the postmodern thinker concludes that most conflicts happen because somebody thinks their story is the true story, and the world should live under that story, and then horrific things happened. The assumption is that truth claims will be followed by violence and oppression to get you to believe. And it's because of World War I, it's because of World War II, and I thought we were getting better and we were progressing, that life was going to get better. But what we've discovered is that knowing this kind of promise of perfection, this progress isn't making things better, but oftentimes making things worse. These assumptions began to develop, question authority, question truth claims, who are you to tell me what to do? Who gives you the right? Question everything. You've heard that, right? And this postmodern thought gives way then to what's described as the disenchanted age. The disenchanted age is this idea that rationalism, science trumps religion, mythology, these beliefs that somebody has. Effectively, what this age developed was this idea that, that faith is just another myth. It's a superstition. There's nothing really concrete about it. Well, you can understand why, because the promise of progress has failed over and over and over again. And so this age of disenchantment gives way to the age of authenticity. Charles Taylor did a lot of work around this, um, and he said this, that we have moved into a popular level, at a popular level, something called the age of authenticity. In other words, our culture wants the freedom to live and express itself however it wants to. And, and you see that play out in schools. You see that play out in culture. Me, myself, and I, you do you. You define your own belief system. You define your own morality. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that we have entered into this promise of progress that the secular gospel gives us. We've entered into an unprecedented season of hopelessness, levels of anxiety, loneliness, conflict, confusion that we've perhaps never experienced before as a collective human race. 
hopelessness. Love what Mark Sayer says, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you because it's not just at a macro level that this is infecting us. It infects us at a personal level. He said this, um, it's not just at a macro level that the secular myth of progress is being challenged. Our private worlds are in crisis too. We see the rise of anxiety and mental health disorders, falling IQ levels, epidemic loneliness and social disconnection, widespread online bullying, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred. Addictions to drugs, food, technology, sex, gambling, and relationships are widespread. Obesity is rising, becoming a full-blown health issue. In the West, poor mental health is now a normative among emerging generations. Life expectancy in the West's two most powerful nations, the United States and the United Kingdom, has fallen for the last three years running. With all these factors in play, we can see how many are having their moment of doubt for the post-Christian revival seems to be running aground. And the point that I'm trying to help us to understand is this is the context in which we live. Anyone feeling depressed right now? <laughs> Gareth, I'm feeling hopeless. My gosh. And here's what I want us to understand. We live out of a different story, and we're going to unpack that in a moment. But if we're not careful, we as followers of Jesus, we as the body of Christ can play into, can live out of a secular gospel. We can live out of a different story that can leave us with the same kinds of stress, confusion, conflict, loneliness, hopelessness that the world in which we live seems to deal with. In fact, Paul wrote a letter, in fact, he wrote two letters to a church that was dealing with this very thing. And the point that I'm simply trying to make at this point is that, that we've got to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to live in the mix of this cultural soup and have this same cultural mood of anxiety and hopelessness and fear. America's going to hell in a handbasket, right? The church is going to hang on. We'll maybe make it, right? Like, it's just all downhill from here. I don't believe that that's the case. And I believe that God is asking you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe that God is asking you and I as believers, as a community of faith, as ambassadors of the king to the kingdoms of this world, God is asking you and I to live with a different kind of hope because our hope is found in a different source. Our hope isn't found in some sort of progress, some sort of movement forward. Our hope is rooted in a person. And one of the things that you, Paul, he's writing to this church in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica, the Thessalonican Christians, or the Thessalonians, better way of saying it, the Thessalonians, they were probably the most persecuted church in the world, or in, the, in that era. And as amongst the early churches, they probably were persecuted more than any other. And in AD 31, which is two years before Jesus goes to the cross... Sometimes we read the Bible and we, you know, we just think the whole thing is Jesus goes to the cross. No, Jesus lived his life in a cultural context. There was conflict going on. There was almost a civil war that was going on in the Roman Empire. And Octavius ends up winning. And because the city of Thessalonica sided with Octavius uh, during this kind of coup attempt that was trying to take place, he bestowed upon them a privilege of being a tax free city in the Roman Empire. And so this is a great honor for this city to be, can you imagine? Now, you know, that's like living in Vancouver, but getting to shop over in Oregon all the time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's even better than that, to be honest with you, right? Because we think our tax situation's bad now. Man, the Roman Empire just pounded those folks with taxes. 
And so to have tax-free status, if you lived in Thessalonica, your tax burden, I mean, you just became twice as rich as you were. So this was a great honor and privilege. But one of the things about being a tax-free city is that you had to be Romanized. In other words, you had to live out the doctrine of the Roman Empire. Caesar had to be God. Caesar had to be the king. And, and, and so one of the things that might surprise you is that, that religions, that not just any religion could operate then within that city. That, that they had to be official religions. Now what might surprise you is that Judaism was actually considered to be an official religion of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, pretty sweet situation if you're a Jew living in Thessalonica. But then Jesus comes along and kind of messes the whole thing up because the, these Jews get saved. They've become followers of Jesus. And essentially what that meant for these early Christians was that it was allegiance to Jesus above Caesar. Jesus was their first love. Not comfort, not like having it all work out, not progress, not some sort of utopia here on earth. No, no, no. Jesus became their first love. Jesus was the king of kings. And that now created a conflict because you had these group of Christians forming a religion called Christianity or the way as it was known back then. And they were now in conflict with the Roman Empire. Well, the Jews, the high priests and the, the priests in, in Thessalonica, they were pretty smart. And they figured out an angle here to deal with this new sect of Christianity. And they went to the magistrates of the city in Thessalonica and they said, hey, listen, you know, you're going to lose your tax-free status unless you deal with these Christians. See, they're an unofficial, radical religion. They believe in Jesus above Caesar. You better go deal with them. And so what happened in an instant was that the Jews and the Romans ganged up on these early Christians and effectively kicked them out of the city. They were experiencing all kinds of persecution. They couldn't uh, interact socially, economically. Like they couldn't interact in the culture of the city and just be a part of it because they were now being persecuted. So much so that these early Christians actually gave up working. They moved outside the walls of the city and they were hanging on to their faith by a thread. And Paul, in the midst of this hopeless, anxious, stressed out situation, writes them a couple of letters because he wants to help them change their thinking. He wants them to recognize that their faith is not rooted in a circumstance. Their hope is not rooted in a circumstance. Their hope is rooted in something way more concrete than the ups and downs of life. And so he writes them a letter to try to help them to understand what they're called to be, who they're called to be, that they're called to be a people who live in hope. Not wishful thinking, not I hope that I can get there, but to recognize that you have a living hope. You have another source out of which you live. And so he writes them this letter. And I just want to bring three points out that I think will help us. Because the question is, if we're called to have faith as our frame, love as our aim, and hope is the engine that keeps moving us forward, how do we become a community of hope? Not just a community of hope for one another. Not just a community of hope so that we can make it through. No, no, no. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to infect the world in which we live with a hope that's concrete, with a hope that's life-changing, with a hope that doesn't cling on and doesn't just kind of wish and hope that we'll get there. No, no, no. We have the kind of hope that allows us to move forward with purpose. 
And so Paul writes to this church and he says, I'm going to help you get back on track because you've gotten off track. You're thinking they'd stopped building the church, right? They'd stopped being a hopeful, non-anxious presence for the world in which they were living in because they got confused and lost their way about the anchor, the engine of hope that would keep them moving forward. And so he writes this letter and he says, this is what you need to do. And the first thing that he taught them to do was to this, recognize that our hope is found in the promise of God's presence through Jesus Christ. Our hope is not rooted in circumstance. Our hope is not rooted in progress. Our hope is not rooted in, well, I'll be better tomorrow than I am today and I'll just keep trying to get, uh, get ahead. No, 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 our hope is rooted in something way more concrete than that. It's rooted in the presence of God. Which means you can understand why the secular gospel replaces the presence of God with progress. You can understand in a spiritual sense, when you look at all the statistics, when you read the Bible and how hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, how the enemy would go after your hope. But God says, no, 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 your hope comes from a different place. It comes from the presence of God. Look what Paul wrote to, Timothy, or wrote to these Thessalonican Christians. He says, as we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and your enduring hope. There's those three words, faith, hope, and love. So when we write and we think about you, we think about your faithful works, your loving deeds, and your enduring hope, even in spite of the circumstance that you find it in. And where does all that come from? You have it because of your Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point that Paul's trying to make here is that your hope, my hope as a follower of Jesus Christ, our hope collectively, the chain, the engine, the thing that keeps moving us forward, isn't rooted in circumstance, isn't rooted even in a better tomorrow. Our hope, our source, our anchor is in a living hope, Jesus Christ. That faithful deeds, loving actions, a hope that has this source is found in Jesus. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in our ability. It's not found in us just taking another step forward. Peter picked up on this same theme, and this is what Peter said. And once again, the, the, the letter that Peter writes to the Christians, we've talked about this before, they were being deeply persecuted. They'd been moved some 1,500 miles. They'd been relocated, and Peter writes to them about this, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he goes on, he says, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven. I mean, these are powerful words that Jesus wants us to understand that you have been born again to a living hope. That ought to change your disposition. That ought to change how you approach life. That ought to change the kind of encouragement that you have for other people because you're not living from a place in space where it's dependent upon you. You're living from a place in space, a source that's found in Jesus Christ. And what it produces, look at this, it produces an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Think about the world in which we live. The best we can do is we try to progress, but it's still degrading, right? It's still getting worse. It's still dying. It's still getting faded and old. But the hope that you've been saved to produces something that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, and it's kept for you in heaven. And then it says this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be reserved, re revealed in the last time. Man, I hope you get excited about that. 
The fact that, that you have a living hope. And it's not just a living hope in an incident or an occurrence or an event that happened with Jesus on the cross. It's not just something that we look back to. It's actually something that produces something in us that allows us to live with a kind of courage and boldness and faith because there's something imperishable. There's something undefiled. There's something ahead of us that we get to live towards and move towards. And then in the middle while we're here on earth trying to wrestle our way through all of the confusion and all of the stress and all of the anxiety, the word of God says this, you have God's power that's guarding you through faith. I mean, he is the alpha and the omega and everything in between. Like, I hope that encourages you this morning that there's something that happened in the person of Jesus coming, and coming to her earth, dying on a cross, being resurrected. That's the source of hope for us. And it's active, it's alive, it's concrete, it's not flimsy, it's not thin, it's not something that will give up. It's something sure and steadfast. You have a calling that's unfading, imperishable. And as we move towards that, as we move towards that first love, as we move to that intimacy with Jesus, as we move to living and living with Christ in eternity, as we move towards that, you have the Holy Spirit that empowers your faith that helps you to actually live today. And so what Paul is trying, and what Peter are trying to write to the early church, and what I hope you hear through my heart and through the word of God, is that you have in Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit that he gives to you, you have all that you need to live with hope. There's this beautiful verse that Paul picks up, and he writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and he's just rehearsing and repeating and making sure that these believers understand this. He says this, may the God of hope, do you know you serve a God of hope? Not a God of wishful thinking. Do you know that God is not sitting up in heaven biting his nails? Like God's not wondering what's gonna happen next. Like God's not, oh my goodness, I can't believe the devil really got me there. I can't believe they did that. What am I gonna do? No, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He sees all things, all wisdom, omniscience. All wisdom belongs to him. Like, God is the Alpha and the Omega. There's nothing that's out of God's sight. There's nothing that escapes his attention. There's nothing, which means that if that's who God is, why are we so worried? Why are we living with this kind of anxiousness, this kind of stress, this kind of discouragement, this kind of, I don't know if it's all gonna work out. No, my confidence, my faith, my hope is not rooted in me and what I see around me. My faith is rooted, my hope is rooted in Jesus Christ. And so he is the God of hope. And he goes on and he says this, he's gonna fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In other words, as my heart aligns with him, the God of hope, I get to live with joy and peace in spite of my circumstance. Now, the world at best can give me some happiness, which is circumstantial, right? And a little bit of non-anxiety for a season. But what God promises, because he's the God of hope, is you get to live with joy and peace. And in spite of your circumstance, in spite of what's going on, you get to live from a different place. And then he says this, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is powerful stuff. This is the God of hope saying, as you align with me and believe in me, 
that you will be filled with a joy and a peace that's not rooted in circumstance, but not only will you be filled with joy and peace, I'm actually giving you my Holy Spirit to give you the power to abound in hope, which means you can have the kind of hope that isn't just for you, it's for other people. That word abound literally means super abundance. I'm gonna change the name of our church to Super Abundant Life Church. Because that's what the Bible actually teaches us. Abundance isn't enough. What Paul writing here, when he uses this word abound, he's saying, you are going to super abundance. There's an overflow. It cannot stop. The Bible actually puts it this way. There's a wellspring inside of you that ought to effervesce and overflow. Why? Because it's not coming through you. It's not coming. It's not rooted in you. It's coming through you because you're rooted in Jesus. This is the life that we've been called to. Not some secular gospel that hopes to make life a little bit better. No, no, no. We're rooted in Jesus Christ, the God of hope, our living hope, who causes us to live from an entirely different place. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, I love what he says, because God always has his people where he needs them. Think about this. If, if God is the Alpha and the Omega... If God is not worried and anxious and concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, if God sees and knows, how many of you know God's in control? He's got some things in place. When you look at the life of Joseph, you realize God had his man in place. But, but Joseph was rejected by his family, sold to slavery by his family. Joseph ends up in 23 years in prison in a dungeon. Yeah, but God had him right where he needed him. Because there was a day coming when Joseph would stand before Pharaoh and Pharaoh would say, can you interpret my dream? I don't know about you, but I would have answered Pharaoh, absolutely, I'm making something up just to get out of jail. But you know what Joseph's answer was? I don't. But my God does. And you got to understand, in that culture, Pharaoh was God. And Joseph, who spent 23 years in jail, whose heart and affection is all towards God. God is number one. God, his allegiance is to Jesus, not to the Pharaoh. And he stands before the most powerful man on the planet. And he says, I can't do it. But my God can. Which means you're not God. There's another God who can answer your dreams. God always has in place his people. What about Esther? Right? Esther, once again, she's kind of taken up in, in this diaspora that's kind of carted off from her homeland. And she ends up in a foreign land and she ends up in the king's court. She gets favor with the king. She ends up becoming the queen and she gets favor with the king of this world because of the king of kings. And it's because of her that her, her people are rescued and saved. How many of you know God has his people where he needs them? God always has his people where he needs them. But the challenge for us is, are we going to be the kind of church that gives into the secular gospel that, man, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Man, I don't know if it's all going to work out. I'm not sure about the church. I'm not sure if it's really fulfilling its purpose. You know, what about this? What about that? No, no, no. God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And because it's God who's building it, because God is the living hope, because God is the God of hope, he fills me with joy. He fills me with belief. He fills me with peace. And I can be an unanxious presence for other people. You can abound in hope for other people because you're living from a different place. 
Mark Sayers, he said this. I told you I was going to read from Mark Sayers about 15 minutes ago, but here we are. Mark Sayers says this in his book. What if this secular moment in our culture is only a crisis if we ignore God's call for renewal? What if we reframe this as, a, as brilliantly good news? What if God always has his people where he wants his people with nothing to turn to but him? It's, it, it, it is this place of weakness that his power thunders forth. Do we dare to believe that he will do this again in the West? See, the Bible teaches us that it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. I don't have to be boisterous. I don't have to be, I kind of am, I'm sorry about that. But only because I'm trying to help us to recognize we get to live from a different place. You don't have to live the narrative of culture. You don't have to play into the secular gospel and progress and hopefully we'll just make it. No, no, no. You have an entirely different life source that allows you to live from a different place. And there's two things that I think then as a result, Paul said, first and foremost, you've got to recognize that God is your source. But the second thing you've got to recognize is that we are living to please God, not please man. We don't live to please people. We live to please God. Look what Paul said in Thessalonians 2.4. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. There's the framework which we've been entrusted with. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. And so we've got to be those who, who recognize that God's our source we're living not to please man, we're living to please God. I keep saying this, that God, our fidelity is first and foremost to Jesus, not to the culture in which we live. Now, there's a love, there's a way that we live that stuff out, the way of Jesus. That's why we live God's story the way Jesus showed us. But we're to be those who first and foremost please God, not man. And the last thing is this, is that because it's the God of peace that fills you with joy and peace and causes you to abound in hope, we're to be those who are a non-anxious presence in a world filled with anxiety. In fact, look what Peter, or Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, and then I'll skip down to verse 11. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in a way that pleases God. Look, there's that phrase once again. We're living for Jesus, not living for self, not living for this world. Verse 11, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before, the people who, so that then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and will not need to depend on others. And what Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, he says, your source is Jesus. You live to please him. Your fidelity, your heart is to him first and foremost. Thank God for all the other gifts and graces and beautiful things that God allows us to delight in and enjoy here on this earth. But man, it's all secondary to him, to being in his presence. It's why we do things like tonight where we just gather to worship and to pray just to be in his presence. But Paul then says this, that translates into a way that you live. That we don't have to get all worked up and stressed out and kind of rattle our swords, all these kinds of things. We recognize that we have a way in which we live. And people, if you live a life, I mean, this is basically what Paul's saying here. He's saying, live a normal life. Mind your own beeswax. 
right? Get a job. Work with your own hands, like I told you. Get your hope back. Build a church. Be a non-anxious presence, hopeful presence for the world in which you live. This is what, Paul, what Jesus is calling us to. It's a life of hope that allows us to abound in hope towards others. And the point is that in your faith, if faith is the frame, if love is the aim, and hope is the chain, then hope is a little bit like the pilot light on your furnace. You gotta keep that thing connected to the source. There can't be a break between the source of hope and the flame of hope that ought to be burning in your life. And this is what God is calling you and I to. And so as we close today, I want us to do communion. You've noticed that we're doing communion at the end of service these last few weeks because I want us to recognize that communion isn't just something we do as a tradition. Communion isn't just something that we do to remember. Communion is an opportunity for us to encounter in a fresh way the faithfulness, the love, and the living hope that we find in Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna have the ushers uh, share, uh, hand out communion. And once you've got a little cup, you'll find there's a cup with juice in it and a cup with, uh, with some bread in it. Once you get that, I just want you to grab it and then I want you to just close your eyes. Because I feel like the Lord wants to minister to you today. Communion isn't just you remembering, it's you encountering. We encounter, encounter afresh and anew the faithfulness of God the love of God and the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Lord, as we hold these elements, Lord, I don't think there's any greater altar call than coming to the table. Lord, for the early church, the, we recognize, Lord, that the table was the center of their gathering. Not a ladder to be climbed, but a table at which people from all walks of life, some stressed and anxious, some fearful, some filled with hopelessness because of the world, the circumstances that they found themselves in. But Lord, you gathered the church, your family around a table because at the table, we all recognize our need and we recognize, Lord, that which you give us your faithfulness to us. Lord, even when we're not faithful, you remain faithful. Your love, Lord Jesus, that surpasses anything that we could ever imagine, that you know us so intimately. There's nothing that we can hide from you, and yet you accept us and you love us. Lord Jesus, you move us, Lord, from those places to become more and more like you. And Lord, if we find ourselves hopeless, we encounter living hope at the table. And so, Lord Jesus, we pause to just reflect and remember your goodness, your faithfulness, your love, your hope. So, Lord, light a flame. Don't let that flame be extinguished. Lord, cause that living hope to continue to burn inside of us. Lord, so that we might abound in hope for our neighbors, Lord Jesus, for our co-workers, for those that we interact with in life, that we live from a different place. And it's because of you. 
So we say thank you as we freshly encounter your faithfulness, your love, and your hope this morning. In Jesus' name, let's eat together. Let's drink together. I want you just to stand to your feet. We're gonna close. We're just gonna sing this as a declaration that God is our living hope. And so if you wouldn't mind, just stand together and let's finish by declaring who God is to us through singing this song.